Today is two months from Christmas. I don't know if you've like circled that on your calendar. If you started cleaning out the basement, I told Danielle this morning we should put up the tree and just go ahead. I love Christmas all year long. I look forward to Christmas, Christmas cookies, Christmas lights, Christmas music. The day after Christmas, I start thinking about Christmas next year. So today is officially two months from Christmas. That's going to be exciting. Um, If you've been wondering what you could get somebody, um, this week, um, if you have $10,000 and you got somebody in your life who likes history, this week a picture of the iceberg that the Titanic hit um, went up for sale for $10,000 in Europe. The morning after the Titanic hit, April 15, 1912, um, this iceberg, a boat was going through the area looking for survivors, and it saw the iceberg with a big stripe of red paint on it from the Titanic, and a guy took a picture, and if you want this old grainy picture for ten grand, you can buy that of the most tragic um, shipwreck in all of history. More than 1,500 lives lost that day, April 15, 1912. Um, I intro with that to remind you that we've been talking about a shipwreck all month long at church from Acts chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22 today. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They've got one, um, one that you can borrow today. They've got ones you can have. If you don't have a Bible, just write your name in this one and keep it. We've given away more than a thousand. Uh, we're going to read a lot of the Bible today, so it might be good to have one in front of you just so you don't lose your place. We're going to read an entire chapter of the Bible. So fire it up on your phone, um, fire it up on your tablet, uh, because in Acts chapter 22, we continue walking towards the shipwreck that we are studying in Scripture, and we're studying the shipwreck to try to learn how to overcome the storms in our life that sometimes leave us in very difficult places. And the Bible is a book filled with stories about storms and rescues and wrecks. Um, Noah and his ark, Jonah and his big fish, Jesus calming the storm with his supernatural power, the apostle Paul that we'll study in Acts chapter 27, Peter trying to walk on the water in the midst of a storm. The Bible has a lot to say about storms and shipwrecks, but nowhere does it give more print to a shipwreck than the shipwreck of the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27. But we have been studying about kind of what, what we call the shipwreck life of the apostle Paul. His life started wrecking his life started going in the wrong direction about a month ago and when we left Paul he was in prison in Jerusalem so the question today kind of the content of today is how do we get from a jail cell in Jerusalem to a boat in the Mediterranean that's where Acts 22 and 23 are going to take us we're going to figure out how to move from jail in Jerusalem to a boat in the Mediterranean in just a few weeks we're going to study the shipwreck of Paul but let's get from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean um, today in Acts chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 30. So Paul has been arrested in the temple. He has been taken to jail. They were getting ready to beat him when he said, time out, I'm a Roman citizen, which meant he got a trial before he got punished. So they said, okay, we're going to wait. And they're getting ready to bring him to trial. And he's having a conversation with the commander who arrested him. Here's where Acts 22:30 picks up. And then we'll read all the way through chapter 23. Deep breath. Here we go. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. The Sanhedrin was kind of the Congress of Israel. Um, It made religious law. It kept religious law, legislated religious law. It was made up of two parties like our Democrats and Republicans. They had Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't like each other any more than our Republicans and Democrats like each other. So you're going to see Paul kind of have a holy filibuster that kind of gets his his rear out of a difficult situation. Um, That's just a little bit of background. Let's keep reading. So the next day released him. He'd ordered all the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. 
At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth because he'd been causing so much problem for Israel. This guy was in charge of legislating religious law. Paul said, I haven't done anything wrong. So they're like, yeah, you have. So they struck him. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And then Paul said, my bad. Uh, Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that was the high priest, for it's written, don't speak evil um, about the ruler of your people. Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and some of the others were Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees said that there's no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was such a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We don't find anything wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Verse 12. The next morning, some of the Jews formed a conspiracy, and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priest and the elders and said, We've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, interesting thought here. We don't hear much in the Bible about Paul's family. Now we find out he has a sister. Now we find out he has a nephew. His nephew has heard of the plot, which means many, leads many scholars to think that maybe some of Paul's own family wanted him dead. Only way this kid gets in the room to hear of an assassination plot is if one of his family members is involved. So he goes to tell Uncle Paul they're going to kill you. Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, he drew him aside, and he asked, what, uh, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink anything until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and he ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he can be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry ride with him while they returned to the barracks. When they arrived, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, They delivered the letter to the governor. They handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard 
in Herod's palace. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Herod's palace in Caesarea. It's one of the most historical landmarks in all Israel. I've been there several times. I'll be there with a group that I'm leading of 18 people from our church in, in a couple of weeks. One of the most beautiful spots on planet Earth. If you can picture the crystal blue Mediterranean, picture a picture you've seen of Greece looking down on the Mediterranean, that's Caesarea. Paul got from a jail in Jerusalem to a jail on the beach in Herod's palace in Caesarea through a conspiracy to kill him and kind of a midnight horse ride. But the question is, what can, we, what can we learn through all of this? You know, my goal every week as I prepare to preach is to read over the text and to find information that can become inspiration to your life spiritually. So as I'm looking through Acts 23, I'm looking for information. What do I need to teach the people that they might not know? Should I tell them how far Jerusalem is from Caesarea? Should I teach them what a centurion is? Should I teach them about the Sadducees and the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin? And as I'm looking through all this information, piles of information, Paul's family, Paul's accusers, Paul's nephews, the entire time I'm looking for information that can become inspiration so I can help you understand something about living for Jesus. And nothing was coming to me. I mean, a lot of facts, a lot of figures. I could get up here and give you a great lesson on a lot of stuff from Acts 23, but I struggled because I could not find in my heart something that I felt inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring you today. And as I was working through this, as I kept, you know, sketching out information and literally ripping off notes and throwing it away, the whole time, just as a Christian, I'm reading through this scenario thinking of myself being in this position. And the whole time I kept thinking, man, I wonder, like, I wonder what Paul was thinking going through all this. Like I'm looking at all this information and I'm trying to process it, but my heart is stuck on, like what was Paul thinking? Like his nephew runs up to a jail cell, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, what? He tells him, there's 40 people. Now let's back up a step. Paul was a Pharisee. So before that, all his co-workers had tried to kill him. He was, we think at one point, a contributing member to the Sanhedrin. So all the people that he had worked with for maybe at one point a decade of his life wanted to kill him. So now he's got those people who he used to live life with daily, he used to work with, he used to kind of be pals with all, they all hate his guts. Now he's got one of his nephews saying there's a group of people, possibly some of your families involved, they want to kill you. He's in jail. All he wants to do is go do ministry and help people. He brought an offering back from a mission trip to help all these people who were hungry. They turned on him and wanted to kill him. So I'm sitting, as I'm processing this information, my heart can't get off of just as a Christian who knows a little bit about the Apostle Paul. I kept thinking, man, what was Paul thinking during all this? And as I went through draft after draft of trying to present this information to you, God told my heart, Christian, the the question you're asking, the question you're asking is the inspiration of this story. There's a lot of good information. But the answer to your question, what was Paul thinking, is more powerful, has more powerful spiritual inspiration than any information that's listed in Acts chapter 23. And the answer to that question, what was Paul thinking, if you haven't already, pull out your notes so you can take notes today um, out of your bulletin. The answer is, What was Paul thinking? What he was thinking is a staggering lesson in spiritual perspective in the midst of struggles. Because we can answer that question. What was Paul thinking? We actually, believe it or not, know the answer to that question. So do you know how to read his mind? No, except that he often wrote down what he was thinking in similar situations. So it's not that we know how to read Paul's mind, but scripturally speaking, we can actually know more about what Paul was thinking most of the time than what Jesus was thinking because Paul wrote so much down. Jesus never wrote any books of the Bible. Jesus preached messages that people wrote down. Jesus prayed prayers that people wrote down. Jesus told stories that people wrote down. But Jesus himself never sat down and said, Dear diary, here's what's going on. But Paul did it a bunch. 
Paul did it so much, in fact, that we are able to look into situations and know exactly what Paul was thinking. And as I ask myself this question Tuesday morning over and over again, man, what, would, what could Paul have been thinking during this scenario? The answer was shocking. It was staggering. And I want to be honest, I, I believe it's grabbed hold of my heart and shaped how I see life in a different way. Now, how can we know what Paul was thinking? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters or books of the New Testament. We call them books. They were letters. He, he didn't sit down to write a book that was going to be published. He wrote a letter to a church that ended up being kept by the church for all of history. In those 13 letters, there were 115 chapters. There were 2,032 verses or sentences. So there's a lot that Paul said about life, about ministry, about theology. Um, he, he spent 15 years of his spiritual life writing and teaching. He started with the book of Galatians in about AD 40. He wrote his last book, 2 Timothy, between AD 65 and 67. So from like the first day he became a Christian till the day he had his his head chopped off by the Roman Emperor Nero because of his ministry, we kind of have him telling us the story of his life and his ministry and what he thought. So the reality is, when we ask this question of the Apostle Paul, what was he thinking? We can know exactly what he's thinking. And how he sees the world spiritually is unbelievable. And if we can learn to see the world like Paul saw the world, I think it could change the world. Let me show you what I mean by that. But some of you, some of you are going to be thrown by a loop for what I say today. Because when we live for Jesus and when we think the way Jesus wants us to, it's often very different than the way we've been trained to think or we feel like we should think. How, how do we see the world? You need to understand this. We all see the world through the lens of theology. Theology is a, is a combination of two Latin words, two Greek words. Um, the words logos and theos. Logos means study or knowledge. Uh, theos means God. Theology is the study of God. All of us see the world through the lens of how we view God or how we don't view God. There is a God, there isn't a God. We live our life, we set our moral standards, we see things, we act and react based on our knowledge of God, based on our theology. But proper theology isn't just religious in nature. Proper theology doesn't just inform and shape your view of God, it shapes your worldview and how you see and respond to everything in it. So I can look at your life, you can tell me how you feel about a certain situation and many times I can tell you your theology. I can watch how you react and respond to negativity, and I can tell you a little bit about your theology. I can look at some of the choices and decisions you make and how you treat people, and I can tell you something about your theology because your theology ultimately shapes your worldview and everything that you do and how you react and respond to everything and everyone. And when we look at the theology of the Apostle Paul through the lens of his worldview, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy the lesson we learn listening or thinking about Paul being in a jail cell His co-workers have turned on him. His friends that he went to school with all those years in training to be a Pharisee have turned on him. Members of his family have turned on him. He's sitting in a dark jail cell. He's been said they've been beaten nearly to death, and then he'd been torn nearly in two. So he's licking his wounds physically and emotionally and relationally. And then a little nephew comes and says, Uncle Paul, by the way, they're going to kill you. What what was Paul thinking? I mean, what a night. What What a few days. What was Paul thinking? Well, we can know the answer to that, and the answer to that is unbelievable. Number one, Paul knew that his struggles were spiritual, not personal. Paul didn't take anything that was happening personally. Not against his, not against the people he went to school with, not against the Pharisees that he used to work with, not against the Sanhedrin who he made a consulted with, not against his family members, not against these 40 men that wanted. He just, he knew his problems 
were spiritual at the foundation of them. They weren't personal. How, say, Christian, how can you know that? Because he told us. In Ephesians 6, Paul looked at the struggles that he dealt with in the world. And he said, you need to understand, here's my worldview. In Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, Paul said, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes, you should jot it down on your notes. And in the original Greek language, it's the word methodi. It's the word we get methods from. It's plans, strategic plans for something. So Paul said, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, his specific plans for your life. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Paul said, ultimately, it's never about people. Ultimately, ultimately it's never personal. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Listen, Paul was experiencing his day of evil. Paul was experiencing a day of evil. His friends had turned on him. His co-workers had turned on him. His former classmates had turned on him. His family had turned on him. Paul was experiencing a day of evil. But he knew the enemy who was behind it. Paul said, ultimately, when everything goes wrong, and there's really only one person to blame, because the problems of our world are, are way less about humanity and way more about the spiritual forces of darkness that are just kind of operating behind the scenes of life. So when was your day of evil? Because maybe, maybe your day of evil, we can define that as just the day everything went wrong and you felt like everybody turned against you. When was that day of evil for you when you weren't able to stand? When was that day in your marriage? These are the questions we began asking when we started this series. We said, when is your then? When was the then everything kind of fell apart? When was the then in your marriage? When it went from being dating and romance to partnership to cohabitation to, man, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. When was that day in your parenting when you looked up and your kids didn't like you and you didn't like them and it became real tension-filled? When was that time at work when your boss was just totally inappropriate or your coworkers kind of turned you and you just felt like you were on the outside looking in? When was that time in relationships or friendships where the pack you used to run with just kind of... It just kind of fell apart and maybe you kept running, but you were left on the outside. When was that time in church or ministry? You really engaged in ministry, but then something went really, really wrong. A pastor did something wrong or a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher. You just went, we had a church that went through transition and it just wasn't right for you anymore and you stepped aside. When was that time in your self-image or your weight when discouragement kind of lingered into depression and you just weren't able to ever snap out of it? When, when was that then? When was the day of evil when your finances, when you had the rug pulled out from under and you realized, oh my gosh, we can't pay our bills anymore. We're never going to get out of debt. When was then? When was that time when you realized this habit of yours was actually an addiction and you needed help? Because if you can identify your then, the place where the storm cr- clouds begin to gather in your life physically, relationally, emotionally, you can recognize that, Paul says, as the day of evil when all the devil's plans for you kind of culminated to knock you on your rear spiritually. And Paul said, we've got to be able to stand in those times when spiritual struggles try to overwhelm us. We have to be able to stand. Because not just Paul, but Jesus told us, listen, the problems of the world are spiritual in nature. In John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief describing Satan comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. So when things are destroyed, when relationships are destroyed, marriages are destroyed, future plans are destroyed, Jesus said, Satan is behind that. When joy gets stolen, when peace gets stolen, when health gets stolen from you, Jesus said, the devil is behind that. When things die in your life, dreams die, people die, people physically begin to pass off the scene. 
Jesus says Satan is the result of all of that. And Paul could have seen his enemies as 70 rulers in the Sanhedrin. He could have said, they are against me. Paul could have seen his enemies as 40 assassins pledged against him. They are against me. Paul could have seen his enemy as an entire nation. All of, all of uh, Judea has turned against me. But Paul saw his enemy as one person. He said, Satan, the founder of sin, the founder of destruction, ultimately my problem is a spiritual problem. And here's where this begins to shape your worldview and your reactions and responses. If if the problems of our life are spiritual, then the solutions of our life are spiritual. And this shapes our worldview and actions. So much so that Jesus says you do crazy things when your worldview sees things as spiritual. Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can't do that unless you believe their problems are spiritual, not personal. It's hard to pray for someone who's hurt you. It's hard to pray for someone who doesn't like you. It's hard to pray for someone who's against you unless you see their problems as spiritual and you think, Lord, if I would begin to pray for them, if they would find Jesus, everything would change. It's really not them. It's the sin in them. It's the spiritual struggle they're having that's manifesting itself against me. If our struggles are spiritual, the solution is spiritual. And when our worldview tells us that our problems are spiritual and the solution is Jesus, it changes how we feel and it changes how we react. Because I I think about Paul sitting in that jail cell, the whole world against him. And I'm thinking, man, Paul has to hate these people. But he didn't, not according to his own words. What was Paul's worldview? Paul saw these people as ministries, not enemies. This is is where it turns and gets really hard. And it tells you your worldview a little bit. Paul saw these people as ministries, not enemies. He stood before no less than 110 specific men. In Acts chapter 23, 70 from the Sanhedrin, 40 who wanted to kill him. But his words about them are shocking. These were men who were so passionate about the Jewish faith that they wanted to kill him because he thought they were hindering that in the world. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul had written a letter to the church at Rome while he was in Ephesus. Let me give you just a little bit of a timeline. Paul left Ephesus. He went to collect offerings for the church. Then he got on a boat, went to Jerusalem, and ended up in jail. So right before Paul took his trip to Jerusalem that put him in jail, Paul said, here's how I feel about all these Jewish people causing me trouble. He said, I speak the truth in Christ in Romans chapter 9. He talked about him in all of Romans 6, all of Romans 7, all of Romans chapter 8. Just his heart for Jewish people that didn't get him. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, what these people didn't understand is 110 people wanted Paul dead so that he would quit talking about Jesus. And Paul said, you got to understand, I'll take that trade if you'll believe in Jesus. You can have my life if you'll just open your eyes to Jesus. I'd rather be dead. As a matter of fact, I will separate myself from Jesus if you will connect to him. Paul didn't see these people as his enemies. He saw these people as his ministry because he knew the people causing his trouble were being blinded by their sin and that their only answer was Jesus. So Paul said, if I can get them to Jesus, I've solved their problem and mine because their problem is spiritual and what I have the opportunity to do is step in to minister. And the same thing is true about the people in our lives causing our problems, causing our struggles, causing our storms, They are the people in our life who need ministry not to be placed on an enemy enemy list. But you have to have a pretty mature mindset spiritually with yourself before you can be this honest about others spiritually. 
You see, Paul was able to look at these people as ministries, not enemies, because he said, I used to be like this. Paul said, it's easy for me to have this view because this used to be me. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, here's what the Apostle Paul said. He's speaking to Timothy, who was his apprentice. This is the way to lead someone spiritually. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul said, listen, the only reason I can tell you how much Jesus loves you is because of how much Jesus loved me. If you're sitting in here today, there is someone sitting in here today who doesn't feel like they should be sitting in here because of how sinful their past is. Paul would say, I'm worse than you. There's someone in here today who feels uncomfortable walking into church because they think if people only knew what God knows about me, Paul would say, I'm worse than you. You add up all your sin together. Paul said, I'm the worst sinner who's ever lived in the history of the world. But here's the thing. God showed me mercy so that when I got that, when I understood that I was an enemy of God, but he showed me mercy, God viewed me as a ministry, not an enemy. He said, I finally understood mercy and I was finally able to offer it to somebody else. And only when we realize, all of us, that God views us as ministries rather than enemies. Because the Bible says we're born in sin, we're born separated from God, and our life is kind of anti-God. We live as enemies of God, but God doesn't say, your enemies, I wiped off the face of the earth. He said, your ministries, I'm going to extend mercy. Only when we realize God views us as ministry rather than enemies and shows us mercy will we ever be able to do the same for anybody else. See, but Christian, that's really, really hard. Man, if you only understood who my ex-husband is, who my ex-wife is. You've got to understand they're enemies. Okay, I get that. But could it be that through the grace of God, if you would see them as a ministry rather than an enemy, you could extend some kind of mercy that might show them an example of what Jesus would be like? Say, Christian, if you only knew my former boss and the things they did or the things they made me do or the way they treated us. Okay, I get that. But what if instead of seeing them as an enemy, we saw them as a ministry and we were able to extend to them some mercy that showed them an example of who Jesus was? You say, Christian, if you only understood my former employees who were costing me money, who were dividing my workforce, who were talking behind my backs, okay. But what if you didn't see them as enemies and instead you saw them as ministries to extend mercy to so they might see me as Jesus? You say, Christian, my estranged kids, if you only understood how bad my kids treated me or you only understood, Christian, how bad my mom and dad treat me. If you only understood what my former friends have done to me, Christian, you've got to understand these people consider me enemies. Okay, but what if you considered them ministries and you extended mercy to them so that they might see an example of Jesus in you? And you can go on and on. I mean, we could get real big with this, right? What about terrorists? What about ISIS? I mean, we, we, we could go kind of big level if you want. What if we saw people as ministries rather than enemies? And we helped extend mercy to people so that they might see who Jesus is. The only way we're able to do that is if we see ourselves as enemies of God who have been extended mercy and forgiveness. Just so God can say, hey, this is how I want you to treat people. This person was against me, but I loved them and extended them mercy. And their heart has been transformed. Say, Christian, but their selfishness, that's just their sin. That's not them, that's their sin. But Christian, their pride, that's not them, that's their sin. But Christian, their jealousy that drove a wedge, that's not them, that's their sin. But Christian, their gossip and how they talked about me, that's not them, that's their sin. But their lack of integrity, it's not who they are, it's what they're struggling with. Their lack of care for people, that's just their sin. Their deliberate hurt, their divisiveness, their abuse, listen, that's, that's not them, that's their sin. That's their spiritual struggle. 
And if the problem is sin and the answer is Jesus, what if the avenue is you? The problem is sin, the answer is Jesus, but what if, what if your life is the avenue they walk to see that all the garbage in their life is just the underlying work of Satan to divide them against everyone else in the world, including God? What if they realize Jesus offers mercy and people who have been offered mercy by Jesus also offer them mercy? What if the problem is sin and the answer is Jesus and the avenue is you? You see, people need to know Jesus. And Paul didn't look at these people in Acts 23 as people who were standing in the way of his ministry. He looked at them as his ministry. No less than three times in the next few chapters will Paul stand before somebody who's standing in the way of his ministry and just start preaching to them. Paul said, I can see you as an obstacle to my Christianity or I can see you as the current point to my Christianity to love you and show you Jesus and tell you my story. You see, what looks like our demise might actually be a surprise. Surprise. You get to see how Jesus would react to you through how I am going to love you. Because when your head understands the problem of sin in our world and your heart becomes more sensitive to people, it begins to long for Jesus for two reasons. You know without Jesus, these people who are hurting you, they have no hope. But you also know that with Jesus, one day your life is not here, but your life is with Jesus in heaven. And you're thinking, you know, I long for Jesus because if Jesus would come into their life, it would fix all of this. But I also long for Jesus because if Jesus doesn't come into their life, well, at least one day it will fix all of this. Jesus is the only one who can fix us or anybody else. And because Paul knew Jesus, number three, Paul saw hope in the midst of heartache. How could Paul not be discouraged? He's sitting in a jail cell. His friends are against him. His former classmates are against him. His family is turned on him. His nation is turned on him. They don't even want him there. Rome is trying to figure out how to kill him legally. You think, man, how could he not be discouraged? Because his theology shaped his worldview. And he knew Jesus was still in charge, so he saw hope in the midst of heartache. See, how do you know that? Because of the words he wrote. He, he wrote his thoughts down. In Romans 8.28, again, this book that he wrote, this letter that he wrote right before he left for Israel, he said, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. You know that Paul wrote the words of Romans 8.28 to Christians in Rome before his world imploded in Jerusalem? You see, Paul didn't have to be reminded of a worldview that God, in everything, God's working for your good because he was the one who told the world about that. So you say, what was Paul thinking sitting in that cell that night? In some strange, sadistic, spiritual way, Paul's thinking, I got him right where I want him. He saw hope in the midst of heartache. In Romans 15, 23 through 25, right before Paul left for Jerusalem, he wrote to the Christians in Rome and he said, I'm coming to see you. And I want you to see why Paul experienced hope. Because in Romans 15, 23 through 25, he said, now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions... And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I've got to go to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Paul, right before he gets on a boat to go home, writes a letter and says, Hey, I'm on my way. I've got to go to Jerusalem and drop off an offering. But after that, I'm coming to you. And then he goes to Jerusalem and it looks like everything goes wrong. He gives the offering. They put him in prison. It looks like he's going to die. And you think, man, you'd lose all hope, not Paul. Because Paul realized in the midst of everything appearing to go wrong, Paul saw his spiritual hope still intact. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of sin, Paul saw hope 
Because the opportunity to know Jesus and make him known still existed. As a matter of fact, Paul's plan, Paul said, I think God's called me to Rome, but I got to go to Jerusalem first. So Paul sent in Jerusalem. And all of us would think, well, I guess the trip to Rome is canceled. Not Paul. Why? Because God said, you still got to go to Rome. In Acts 23, 11, we kind of glossed over it quickly, but it says the following night, the Lord stood near to Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You see, God always has the final destination of your life in mind. God is always working towards the goal of you getting to know Jesus a little better, understanding Jesus a little better, drawing a little closer to Jesus in your life. And God will say, whether your day is sunny or whether your day is cloudy, whether you've been treated well, whether you've been treated poorly, whether it appears the struggles in your life spiritually are going to overwhelm you or not, you need to know, Philippians 1.6, be confident of this. He who began a good work is going to finish it. You're going to keep pushing towards Jesus no matter what if your theology keeps looking for God in the midst of of your storms. And Paul sat in that jail cell and thought, well, this really wasn't the way I thought this was going to go. But I wanted to go to Rome. And God told me, I'm going to go to Rome. So somehow all this is going to work out for good because I trust Jesus. And this is the only hope anyone has of getting through any shipwreck in life. Knowing that God always has our final destination in mind. Not just our immediate next step, The step you're living through right now might be a step that doesn't appear God is anywhere near. The next few steps you you might have to walk might feel like the most lonely steps you've ever taken in the history of your life. But you need to know if God is in your life, those steps are going to lead you to a final destination of knowing Jesus personally, more intimately, until one day you're with him. You see, I found as a pastor in the last 15 years that the physical problems in our life often reveal to us spiritual lessons. It's amazing how when things go wrong, we kind of open our eyes spiritually and say, what does God want me to learn? When the physical ailment comes, we stop and focus spiritually. When the tragedy occurs, we stop and we focus spiritually. When the health begins to decline, we stop and focus spiritually. When we lose a job and finances are tough, we stop and focus spiritually. When friends kind of abandon us or we go through a marital or relational breakup, we kind of stop and focus on God. I've learned that physical problems are great catalysts for focusing our eyes on God. But the more mature we get... The spiritual truth should begin to shape our physical issues. We should look at the bad stuff going and think, well, God must want to teach me something here. We should look at the devastation that occurs and think, well, God must have something for me new here. We should look at the jail cells that we sit in and think, well, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But I know God has called me onward and upward, so somehow we're going to figure it out. And if we will put Jesus in the center of our life and see the world this way, And if we will allow others to see Jesus in us by the way we minister to them rather than allowing them to become enemies to us, we can get through any storm that we face and we can show the world how to get through the storms that they face. So how do we do it? What was Paul thinking? Quick summary. Paul was thinking that the problems of our life in this world are spiritual. Paul was thinking that the solutions to the problem is Jesus. Paul was thinking that the proper response to these people The proper response of our life towards sin is mercy that points people towards Jesus. Not judgment, not hate, not distance, not enemies. Because even in the midst of heartache, there's hope. If Jesus is the answer, if Jesus is our anchor, and if Jesus is the pursuit of our life. Our band's going to come to our stage to lead us in a worship song. But as they do that, would you just bow your heads with me? And could we pray together this morning before we close?